You can be seated. Amen. 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 We are um, in the book of Revelation, brothers and sisters. If you're, if you're new with us or, or just to get you reoriented, reoriented, we're working through the first four chapters um, of the book of Revelation. What's distinct about this part is that it's, it's the present. Uh, it's the, Jesus, the vision of Jesus speaking to John, uh, letter, and he's giving him instructions to send to the seven churches, seven churches um, that John would have been familiar with in that time. And, uh, and what happens at the beginning of chapter 4 is then Jesus shifts, the vision shifts to, to say what will come. Uh, but, but in these first four chapters, it's very much Jesus speaking directly to the churches um, and to the Christians in, in the ancient world. And, and then what we've been saying is that as Jesus speaks to those churches, he speaks to us. Uh, the words of Christ come to us. Uh, they instruct us. They, they, um, they convict us. They give us hope and encouragement um, in difficult times. And, and so we, we come to the second uh, verse, uh, church, excuse me. Last week was the church in Ephesus. Um, this week, the church in Smyrna. Um, so we're, we're going to read, uh, we're in chapter 2, and we're going to read chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Verses 8 to 11. Uh, so I'm going to read the whole thing, and, and it's broken on your outline, but you can, you can follow along with me. Uh, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Uh, and by the way, what happens through these letters is that uh, pieces from chapter 1, from the vision of Christ, get then piece by piece get put into each letter. You'll notice that the beginning of each, of each letter has a piece of that original version, uh, vision at the end of chapter 1. These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Jesus says to them, I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. Yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer, I tell you. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer, for, uh, suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you your life as your victor's crown. I will give you life as your victor's crown. Verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, some of you know that I, 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 didn't, I, grew up, I was born in the U.S., but I grew up in Ireland. I spent the first 10 years of my life in Ireland on the mission field there. Uh, raised in Ireland with two wonderful American Midwestern parents. Uh, and, and I say wonderful, I, I, there's, a, there's a point of emphasis I need to make. Despite the story I told two weeks ago, I actually had a wonderful father. He did not, I did not burn myself on the regular. Um, I have a wonderful father, I should say. Um, but raised by two, by two parents from Kansas in Ireland, uh, and then at the age of 10, I moved back. Uh, we moved back to the Philadelphia area. Uh, and so you may be familiar with this. What I'm known then as, I'm known as a third culture kid. Has anybody heard this term before? Uh, third culture kid, raised in a different country that's not of my parents' home, um, but raised in an American household, and then I come back to America. So I'm neither really Irish, 
I'm not particularly American in many ways because I grew up in Ireland, um, but, but here I am nevertheless living in America as sort of n neither Irish nor totally American. Um, I'm a third culture kid. Um, and any other third culture kids in the house, by the way? A couple, okay, yeah, we're, we're very special. Uh, we have unique insights into the world. Uh, and, and truly, there is, there's a lot of great things about that. Um, I'm particularly comfortable moving in and out of other cultures. Uh, it doesn't phase me as much. It's part of how I've grown up. On the other hand, um, I also often just feel like an imposter wherever I am. So, you know, there's some good things. There's some baggage that comes with it. Uh, wh why do I tell you all this? What I want to say to you as, you as you engage and read these words is, is there something about the church today, about being a follower of Jesus today, uh, that in a sense, we are all third culture followers of Jesus. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? There, there's a pastor, um, sort of cultural commentator, Mark Sayers, this Australian guy, um, and he's picked up on um, this idea that there's, there's sort of three big swaths of Christian history. You have pre-Christian history, right, before Christ. Uh, then you have the, that's first culture. You have second culture, which is basically the last 2,000 years, right, as the world has really uh, become enmeshed in uh, Christianity, Judeo-Christian culture. Um, but now he, he marks that we're actually in a third culture phase right now. We're, we're in a third culture. We're what we call post-Christian. where the, the world has had, had generations of, of acceptance as Christianity is sort of the main line in the West in particular faith, um, but now we're moving in our lifetime in many ways, particularly if you're a boomer, you're experiencing this, I think, in a very acute sense. The, the, the culture is moving beyond, in a sense, beyond, post-Christianity. Post-Christianity. Uh, we're a third culture follower of Jesus, whether you like it or not. And, and actually, there's no going back, as some of us would like to do. The, the toothpaste is out of the tube. We, we can't go back. The culture has absorbed Christianity and found it lacking, and, and now they're, they're, they're moving on to whatever's next. You're a third culture Christian today. Uh, and of course, there's lots of things to say about that, but what I, the reason I raise that is because in some ways, in many ways, to follow Jesus in America today means you will, you will inevitably face pressure. You will inevitably face the disorientation of trying to follow Jesus in a culture that has decided it's post-Christian. You will face affliction. Um, and that's actually the word in verse 9 in the, in the passage we read. Uh, I know your affliction. This word affliction is used many times throughout the New Testament. And what it literally means is sort of like a slow pressure, uh, the squeezing of an in, in, in a tight space. It's pressure. It's affliction. It's often translated as tribulation or anguish. Uh, and, and, and it's frequently used to describe trouble that followers of Jesus experience in the world. And, and so in this passage, Jesus is speaking to Christians who are facing this kind of pressure, this slow squeezing of the culture around them uh, that wants to press in on them because of the life that Jesus calls them to live. And so the question for us is how can we live, and for them, is how can we live faithfully under pressure? even as the world presses in, even as the devil, as we'll see in this passage, is at work. Um, and so we're, we're going to look at this in, a way, in this way. What are the lies that feed the pressure? Um, and what are the remedies for those lies? So three lies and three remedies. Uh, we'll start with, with uh, verse 8 and, and into 9. Um, 
These are the words of the hymn who was first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. Uh, Smyrna was, was a well-known, prosperous city um, in the ancient world. It was called the Crown of Asia. It's actually still where, where that city was. Uh, it, it now still stands as the third largest city in Turkey today. Um, they were known for their prosperity. They were known for their faith to the Roman Empire. Uh, and so the Christians, Christian way of life in, in rejecting the way of life in Rome uh, upset the status quo in a prosperous city. This is something you don't do. You don't get in the way of people's wealth. You don't get in the way of prosperity. And you certainly don't get in the way of having a good reputation with Rome. And so the consequence of this is that the Christian community was under assaults. They were under pressure. And in fact, what we know is that their businesses, the Christian businesses, were often uh, ransacked and boycotted as a result. Uh, so the church in Smyrna is experiencing this pressure, this hardship of poverty, of material poverty for their faith in Jesus instead of Caesar. And so here's, here's, here's sort of the lie that feeds this pressure, the lie that, that stirs it up and gives it life. Uh, their lack of material wealth marks them as poor, forgotten, and foolish. You can imagine the temptation that they would face. Why should we give up prosperity? Why should we give up wealth that, that would come almost naturally from living in a city like this? The lie is that the, the true measure of their life should be determined by what they can earn and by what they can possess. And, and it's important to say, before we sort of address the remedy, Jesus does not dismiss their hardship. He says, I know it. He says, I know what you're going through. I see your struggle. I see your affliction. But he wants to call them in that to something deeper. Jesus identifies something about them that's true that they may not be, be thinking about. He says, yet you are rich. Even though you're lacking material possessions and wealth, you are rich. What Jesus wants them to remember is that true riches come in life with Jesus. And what the scriptures show us is that your value is based not on what you possess, but who you belong to. It's a whole new reorientation to value in life. Um, Ecclesiastes 5 says, whoever loves money never has enough. Anybody, anybody feel that way? <laughs> if you feel like you never have enough money, it's probably because you love it too much, right? Uh, that, that, that's me, I could testify. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. I have never been satisfied with my income. I realize I'm saying that in front of you as, at, the, at your employee, I realize that. But I've never looked and said, that's, that's good enough, that's good enough. Always a little bit more, right? Rockefeller said, how much wealth is enough? Always a little bit more. A life that puts greatest value um, on the material wealth is not just simply materialistic, but you're actually possessed by your wealth. Your wealth owns you. And life with Jesus, life that treasures faith in him as greater worth than gold, um, is to belong to the one who was first and last, as it says in verse 8, who died and came back to life again. And, and that's why Jesus can say to them, because of who he is, he can say to them, I see your poverty, but you are rich. But you are rich. You belong to me, Jesus says, the one who gives you life. Think, think of the audacity to say that 
to people who are suffering in poverty. Yet you are rich. And it's a good reminder for us, brothers and sisters, to, as we think about the gospel and how we think about it here at Bridge, the gospel is always good news to the poor. The gospel must be good news to the poor. The gospel must be good news to those who lack. Not because there's nothing, there's nothing particularly holy about being poor, just as there's nothing in having wealth that is in and of itself sinful. Um, but, but the good news to the poor is that, that the living resurrection hope that reaches down into their poverty, down to their hardship, gives them the power to live without shame, without fear, without depression, without guilt of being poor. And, and it's good news to the poor because it, it even gives them the resources to love their enemies, even if their enemies are the reason for their poverty. The gospel must be good news to the poor because of the one who gives life. Uh, this is uh, a little bit of, uh, this, is, uh, this is what Howard Thurman, and the quote you have there is getting at. Howard Thurman's writing, he, he's writing to uh, people, he writes to people who, whose backs are against the wall, as he describes it. The disinherited. And he says, he describes the good news of Jesus in this way. He says, deep from within Roman oppression, Jesus projected a dream, the logic of which would give to all the needful security. There would be room for all, and no man would be a threat to his brother. The kingdom of God is within. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The basic principles of his way of life, of Jesus' way of life, listen, the basic principles of his life cut straight through to the despair of his fellows and found it groundless. Jesus came to an oppressed people with, a, with the good news that that their despair and being oppressed was groundless. Do you know how audacious that is? The good news of Jesus is so good that even living under oppression, you can have hope. By inference, he says, you must abandon your fear of each other and fear only God. Love your enemy that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. So the gospel is good news to even those who are poor. Yet you are poor, Jesus says. And and does that, does that not, brothers and sisters, convict us about what we truly treasure? Following Jesus in a third culture, in a, in a third culture, uh, challenges our relationship to wealth and possessions. It means rejecting the ways we've been formed as consumers in every aspect of our lives. Um, I, I told you a couple weeks ago that I'm, we're, we've gone all in on the Amazon thing. And part of my conviction this week is that what Amazon wants to do is make me a consumer in every moment of my life. And it's not just Amazon, of course, but that's, that's where we've bought in. There, there is no place I can go in which I'm not a consumer with Amazon by my side. Right? The third culture is post-Christian, and part of that post-Christian is that the consumer life is the richest life to have. And so th this word to Jesus, to say to the church in Smyrna, yet you are rich, is to say to us, what, what are you valuing, brothers and sisters? What do you treasure? What might it be this, like this week for you to have, just mark yourself one, racked, one act of generosity that costs you something to someone? And, and what does that tell you about where your heart is and what you're valuing? I was convicted this week 
It's not just that I'm materialistic. It's not just that I'm selfish. It's that my treasure is elsewhere. It's my treasure. Where do I treasure? Lord, help us to be a radically generous people. So under pressure, under pressure, Jesus says, yet we are rich. Uh, The second one, we move on to chapter, uh, sorry, the rest of verse 9 into chapter, I'm sorry, verse 9, verse 10. Uh, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what they're about to suffer. I tell you about what you're about to suffer. I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Uh, So the the church, as we said, is lacking the pressure of lacking material wealth that that they could otherwise earn. Um, But they also face this pressure in two other ways. Uh, First, there are Jews among them that Satan is at work to stir up to slander against them. And and in some form or another, there's deception involved. Uh, Those who call themselves Jews are really not, uh, but they're actually the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan meaning... Satan, Jesus calls the father of lies. Lies are his, only, are his first language. So somehow or another, these people are using deception to slander uh, the Christians. And, and, and it's not entirely clear, the commentators debate about who the, what's actually going on here. It's a strange identification of people. But what we should look at, I think what's most important is what are they doing? What are they doing to the church? These are people that are lying about themselves in order to strengthen their lie about the Christians. So it would be a little bit like if, if a guy I never met before just walked right in, interrupted the sermon, and said, I've known Josh since the day he was born, and he, what, he's telling, what he's not telling you is that he's always been a Cowboys fan. You know? right? So he lies about himself to further the lie about me. And you can see what would happen, of course, as soon as I begin to defend myself, my credibility begins to go down, Right? not up. I've never seen this guy before in my life. They're lying to perpetuate a lie. It's, it's telling that that's like the worst lie I could think about myself, right? Um, they're lying to, to undermine the credibility of these, these Christians. Uh, and then the second thing, so th- there's this slander. The second thing is the devil is going to have some of these believers thrown into prison. Uh, so, so think about this. Families, uh, community will be violently torn apart. Some will go and some will stay, which is almost worse than than all of them sharing the same fate. They'll be torn apart. What's what's characteristic about this pressure? What do do these two things uh, hold together? Both of them are completely out of their control. The Christians cannot stop the spread of a lie, no more than they can stop these forces that are coming to throw them into prison. And so there's a sense in which, and I'm sure you've had some of this pressure in your life, there's a sense in which it will have no end because it's out of my control. There are pressures in my life that come from trying to have faith in Christ that feel like they will never end because I can't control the beginning and end of them. And Jesus says to them right into the middle of it, he says, do not be afraid for these things you're about to suffer. Why? We go back. Who is Jesus? Verse 8. He is the, the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but came back to life. So we can trust that word from Jesus because this is not a chance. He's not rolling the dice with these, with these brothers and sisters. He knows who the slanders are. 
He knows the details of the imprisonment. He knows even the number of days that it will take place. Jesus' power extends over even these things in such a way that you notice he names it as a test, as, as, a, as a temptation to withstand. And you know a little bit about this, perhaps, um, if you've had an older couple, if you're parenting younger kids and, you're par- and an older couple will say to you, yeah, I remember that season. I know what it's like to go through that. Or you're, you're, ha- you're going through a hard work time at a new job and somebody who's, who's worked a little bit longer to you says, yeah, I know there's often bosses that are like that. And you'll get, you, we know what this is like when somebody who has a greater perspective sort of renames something that we're going through for us. And teenagers, I know this is the most maybe aggravating thing that you hear from your parents, that you will come to the other side of this. And that's what, that's what Jesus is saying to them. This is a season. I know I'm powerful enough. Do you trust me? I'm sovereign enough to tell you, when you're with me, all your suffering is, 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 can be recalled a trial, as a test. Not to minimize it, but because Christ knows the beginning and the end of it. He knows the beginning and the end of it. So what's, what's the remedy here? How do we, how do we, how do we engage uh, with this truth that, that Christ is greater than our suffering. Uh, it's actually, it, it's, it's to dwell on a glorious paradox, which is, which is this, the assurance that, that Jesus has the authority, that he is above even our pressure and our suffering, is actually found not by trying to ascend to that glorious truth, by trying to stare up into the clouds and say, Lord, help me get the idea of how massive you are. The paradox is the way you get that is actually by zeroing down in on the details of your life. The way, you, the way you grasp the sovereignty of God in your life, even at this moment, is to notice, brothers and sisters, your breath. The, the, the breathing in and out of your very breath, even as you sit here in this moment, is the way into knowing the sovereignty of God. Even in this moment, he sustains you. Even as you breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, the sovereignty of God determines the beginning and end of that breath. The food on your table when you get home is the reminder of the sovereignty of God. The the, the conversation that will give you joy and, and a little bit of life as you leave here today is a reminder that the God knows just what you need. And so there's great comfort and hope in that. You don't have to ascend. In fact, don't try. The scriptures say, who can can ascend to the wisdom of the Lord, right? But, But he gives us the wisdom of Jesus. What does Jesus tell us to do? Consider the birds. Consider these dumb, ridiculous creatures. I love birds, but you know, consider them, look at them. God cares for them. In the details of our life, we find the comfort to overcome the pressure we face. And, and this, this, by the way, has been, I would just testify, this has been my experience. How have we gotten through the last couple of years? It has not been as much as I've tried to try and read articles that forecast to the end of COVID. I've read a thousand of them. They don't bring me any comfort. I keep reading them, but they don't. The way I've survived the threats that have faced my family and trying to walk faithfully in faith 
in a season like this, and now, as a, 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 now to the next season of whatever's going to happen in Ukraine in the coming weeks, is not to try and see the end of it, but it is, a, again and again, daily to try and see God in the de- and place the details of my life as under his care and see how he's in them with me. So, so finally, let's move to the last one. Um, be faithful, Jesus says, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This, this final pressure point is the one that stands above all others. The threat of death. Christ says to the Christians, even if it should cost you your life, remain faithful to me. If your future is secure in Christ, if you know your true wealth is with Christ, if you know the trajectory of your life is toward a crown, then you can live faithfully and sacrificially in this present moment. And, and the lie uh, the, the above, above this, that, that hangs above this pressure point to, to give up the faith, is that God is actually not being entirely honest with us. That the good news that we will not experience the second death is actually too good to be true. Uh, you know, and this is very third, third culture of us, if, you know, but I know this feeling. That there's a certain which will, amount which will, will follow Jesus because it'll help us be a better person in the world. Um, but there are limits to that, right? Because death, death is an endpoint that extends beyond the trust of God. And, and so therefore, in the face of death, I, I need on some level or another to live for myself. I've got to bunker myself into a reality that I can see, that I can name, and that I can shape for myself. And God is not to be trusted. And, and the third cultural lie within that is that actually it's a sign of progress and intelligence to, to shape a life that is actually after your own making, isn't it? The, the, the cultural narrative right now is the further we get away from religion, the healthier we will be. And I mean religion in the sense of the further we get away from the truth that God is our creator, Jesus is our redeemer, the further we get away from that, the actually the healthier, the smarter we are. Right? The more we're living based on, on, on this, what the science tells us. So in the face of death, we not only deny God, but we move towards seeing denying him as wisdom. And so the remedy is to see that it is actually directly into that denial of God, into that darkness that we all participate in, that God sends his only son for our sakes. Jesus Christ gives himself up for those who forsake and deny him. That's that's you and me. He gives himself up for those who see wisdom in rejecting him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God, verse 17, which we always forget, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And so the cross, brothers and sisters, stands as a violent interruption into the madness that God is not graciously loving and holy as he says he is. And the empty tomb stands in history as the glorious interruption that all of our lives, it's a glorious interruption to the madness that believes all of our lives are headed toward a meaningless death. 
And now the picture from the passage is that the life of faith is now one, it's on a trajectory toward a crown. The crown that shows us that with Christ, he shares all things with us, that we're united with him. Because Christ conquered death, we too can share in that conquering. We too are victorious. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Graciously give us all things. We now share life with Christ. I want to, just as a closing uh, illustration, if you could put put that up, um, John, that'd be great, the picture. This is... um, Oh, I'm such a sucker for art. Uh, um, this, is, this is called Christina's World. It's by Andrew Wyeth. Um, and it's a picture, it's a, it's a closing picture for you to dwell upon, to think about your, your united, your, your, if, you, if, you, if you believe in Christ, you're united with him. You share in his victory. Um, the story behind this painting is that there's, there was a woman who actually lived in the house uh, who, had, who had lost the use of her legs. And this is actually the woman uh, looking up toward, toward the house that she lived in. And what you need to know is that while, while it may look, for a long time I thought this painting was a picture of a woman in total desperation. But it's actually, if you know the story behind it, if you know that she has no use of her legs, it's actually a, a picture of somebody of great longing and love because the home, her home where she lived was really the only place she cherished. And the reason why I show it to you is it's a picture of where we are. In Christ, home with, home with him is the most glorious place we can be. And, and even though we are not quite there yet, even though we're not quite there yet, we, we are on the land, brothers and sisters. We share that same space with him. And even though we are not completely whole yet, like she is, we can still look longingly knowing that that glorious home, that place where we'll be fully united with Christ, awaits us. And it's not in a place that's separate from us. We right, currently, right now, in this moment, we share in that, that reality that Christ shares all things with us. And so if you're feeling, um, if you look at this and you see yourself as one who is desperate in this moment, know too that it also can be a look of longing for the hope that we have, for the hope that we have in Christ. Uh, the worship team can come forward. I would just offer you a, uh, just a couple things as a way of hope and, and thinking forward. What does it mean for us to be a community that, uh, that can be faithful under pressure? To be faithful under pressure in, in, in a third culture means that it, it, the question for our community is, will we do the hard things of faith? Will we follow Jesus into the hard places? whether that's going to a place of extreme poverty and serving. Will we be radically generous with our time and space? It also means, though, will we be a community that that walks into the hard conversations that we need to have and lives faithfully following Christ in a culture that has lost its mind when it comes to sexual identity? And yet, yet what does it mean for us to be a, a community that fosters Sexual integrity and love for all people at the same time. That values each and every person who is made in God's image 
and yet follows God's call for us to live lives of sexual integrity. That, my brothers and sisters, is walking in the pressure of a third, of a third culture. What will it mean for us to be a, a community that's willing to do that, to withstand under that pressure? What will it mean for us to be a, a, a community that honors the, the uh, seeing Milo this morning, um, took, we, we took vows last week as a community to really love and care for, and Jonah, uh, seeing him up there now, to really love and care for our children and say their life now is one we, we want to see raised up and follow Jesus all the days of their life. What will it mean to take those vows seriously? To do such a thing is to walk into the pressure of a third culture that doesn't take such vows so seriously. But brothers and sisters, we can do that. In our union with Christ, he gives us all we need to live lives of faith under pressure. Let me pray. Father, um, I, I thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent your only son for us and that you who sent your son, how much more will you give us all things? We give you glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.